All right. Well, once again, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. You could be seated. You don't have to stay standing the whole service. Um, it's my privilege to be the pastor of New Village Church. My name is David Moore. I was um, the newly pastor. It's been about two weeks now. So uh, praise God for his faithfulness for New Village Church, where a lot of churches didn't make it through those, these past couple of years. Um, God's remained faithful to, to us and, and, and we to him. I'm just going to unplug something real quick. All right. Hopefully I remember to plug that back in later. All right, if you have your Bibles, why don't you make your way to John chapter 2. Uh, Nick Camelone just read through the scripture that we'll be looking at this morning. John chapter 2, and as you're turning there, let me just pray. Father, we just come before you this morning as your church. We belong to you. Father, I pray that you be with us during this time of reading your word and talking about your word. I pray that we can get encouraged by your word. Jesus, we thank you so much for being our Savior, for loving us even at times when we don't love you the way we should. We know that there's forgiveness. We know that you love us unconditionally. And all who have their faith and trust in you, you call them sons and daughters of God. So Jesus, we thank you so much for loving us, for dying on the cross for our sins. And in your name we pray, amen. So as I was looking through a lot of documents this past week, close to having some asthma attacks and things because it's dusty and they're old. But, and some of them are kind of disintegrating my hand. I'm like, I don't know if I should be touching these. They're kind of falling apart. So as I was gently moving through documents, I found an old bulletin from 1964. And I just photocopied it. That way I'm not waving it around, you know, from 1964. But, um, and there's a lot of things out in display of just old bulletins, old reports, and, and everything like that on display in the lobby. But I want to read what's in the bulletin for everybody who would sit in the church in 1964, this is what they would read. This is what it says. The New Village Congregational Church was founded in 1815 and the old church built in 1818. As the community grew, so did the need for the church edifice. With a great deal of volunteer labor and the provision of the Almighty God, the new church was built, and that's this building, in 1962 and dedicated to the glory of God and the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ on April 28, 1963. This is an autonomous church with no denominational affiliation. Its evangelical ministry is geared to the times but anchored to the rock. I, I love that. I'll read it again. Its evangelical ministry is geared to the times but anchored to the rock, Jesus Christ. Our program emphasizes evangelism, missions, and Bible instruction. Our church is a place of prayer, praise, and worship. We are happy to affirm the word of God to be the only source, the only source of peace and assurance of eternal life with God through personal acceptance of Jesus Christ as Savior. In every activity and service of our church, we seek to hold forth the word of life, proclaiming Christ to be sufficient for every need and the problem of men. So today, as we've said a couple of times, we celebrate 60 years of being in this current building. 60 years ago, our faithful church members purchased this land, they broke ground, they built this facility, and they dedicated it to the worship of God. Not only did the members provide a space for the gospel to be proclaimed, but they built with a vision of the future, of looking ahead to reach out and to allow the gospel to transform the community around them. 
and to have the necessary space for God's people to meet together. So this morning, we're going to actually be continuing our series throughout John's Gospel. So if you haven't been here for, your, for a few weeks or, or maybe ever, welcome. I'm, I'm glad that you're here this morning. So we're going to be looking at John's Gospel, and here's the point of the book of John. The point of his Gospel is to reveal to the readers that who Jesus really is, that he's our Savior, that he's our God, he's the one who died on the cross for our sins, and has given eternal life to all who believe in his name. As we look at these verses this morning, we're going to ask this question. And it, it, it's, it's kind of an intense question. But the question is this. What happens when God's house is no longer his? What happens when God's house is no longer his? These verses that Nick read will serve as a reminder of the seriousness and the importance of worshiping God and will hopefully serve as an encouragement for our church, for New Village Church, to stay on the mission that God has given us. So John chapter 2, if you have your notes and you want to follow along, there will be three main points this morning. We'll look at the corruption of God's house. We'll look at Jesus' just response to that corruption. And we'll look at uh, Jesus' authority questions. So John chapter 2, verse 13, this is what we read. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and, the, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Right? Jesus, we looked at last week, had previously just done his first miracle at a private wedding in a small village of Cana in Galilee. He turned water into wine. He didn't add anything to the water. It was a transformation. Water became wine. And it started off his public ministry. Now we see that Jesus, with his disciples and family, they're going up to Jerusalem because it was the Passover. And I don't know how familiar you are with Jewish culture or traditions or the Passover, but the Passover for the Jews was a time of looking back to the past. It was a remembrance of what God had did for the Israelites, that he delivered them out of Egyptian slavery. When the angel of death had passed over the houses of the Israelites and spared their firstborn sons. This was the final plague that God sent to the Egyptians, and the Israelites were commanded by God to remember and to celebrate the Passover. They were commanded to look back and to remember what God had done for them. In Exodus chapter 12, you can read all about the specific commands and, and, the, and the, the feast commanded by God to celebrate the Passover. But the Jews would celebrate this annually, every year at about March and April. And this and on the Passover day itself, between 3 and 6 o'clock in the evening, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., they would slaughter lambs and have their Passover meal. It was actually Jewish law at the time for all Jewish adult males who lived within a 15-mile radius of the temple of Jerusalem, they were commanded to go to the temple to worship for Passover. Any of those Jews who were outside that 15-mile radius it was their dream, their desire that maybe one day they could go to the temple in their lifetime at Passover to celebrate and to remember and to worship God. So we see here Jesus along with his disciples, they're making their way to the temple to celebrate Passover. They're honoring the command from God and so is the rest of Jerusalem. But when Jesus gets to the temple, he's outraged by what he sees. In verse 14, this is what he says. This is what it says. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. As Jesus would enter the temple, 
it would be crowded. It would be crowded because of all those men who lived within a 15-mile radius would be packing into the temple of God to worship. And alongside those who are seeking to worship the Lord were those who are seeking to make money. The problem was not that there were merchants selling animals or the money exchangers or changers were there in the temple, but rather the problem is what it evolved into. What started as a service and a blessing to those worshipers who were in the Lord's house in the temple, it had become corrupt and materialistic. Jesus would say in another occasion in Matthew 21 that God's temple, the house of the Lord, had become a robber's den, a place where robbers and thieves would enjoy themselves, where robbers and thieves would advance their little kingdom of ripping people off. And I want to give a little bit of a walkthrough of of what you would experience if you were a Jew in this time, what you would experience when you walk into the temple at this time. So if you were to visit the temple during Passover, uh, Passover or to visit the temple in general, you needed to pay a temple tax. You would have to go to a money changer who would exchange your currency because the, the temple would only take Jewish or Tyranian coins that were the only ones accepted for this temple tax. So here's the problem. The money changers held all the power. If you wanted that special Jewish coin for the temple tax, you had to pay and exchange your money for what they said. And what happened is they started taking advantage of that. They had these outrageous fees for their services. So right, so now you're in the temple. You just exchanged. You lost some money to get the temple tax, to get the coin for the temple tax. You're in the temple. You're ready to worship. And if you brought your own animal for sacrifice, you had to first get it inspected by the priest in the temple to make sure that it wasn't unclean, to make sure this animal had no blemishes. And this inspection, guess what? It cost money. The corruption got so bad that they believe every animal that was brought in before these people never passed inspection. You lost even more money. Now you're in the temple during Passover, which happens once a year, wanting to worship the Lord, wanting to have a sacrifice, but you don't have an animal. What do you do? Well, there are animals that are being sold in the temple that didn't need to be inspected. They were pre-inspected. They were good enough for sacrifice for Passover. And you would think, wow, that's how convenient, right? There's animals right here. I don't have to go very far at all. They're right here. You'd go over and you'd find the cost of that animal. After finding out that it could be anywhere from 10 times to 20 times the amount of money outside the temple, you were left with a choice. Worship without an animal for sacrifice during Passover or pay that absurd amount of money for an animal to sacrifice. And I just was thinking a few, a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, we went on a youth retreat to Camp Spofford in New Hampshire. We were on 95 North, and you know how they have those big rest areas that have the bathrooms, the fast food, the gas, the convenience stores? I tell the kids, bring like 10, 15 bucks. You know, you get a lunch on the way up, lunch on the way back home from the trip. And when they go into McDonald's, I, you know, I, I, one of the kids ordered like a 10-piece chicken nugget meal, and it was $22. Now listen, I know, you know the state of the economy is a little rough, but the McDonald's right up the street of Stony Brook, it's not $22. And in the same way, I'm like, what do I do? I'm hungry. Do I have to, do I starve? Not starve, but do I stay hungry? Or do I just say, ah, I, know, I'm, I know I'm getting ripped off, but I, I want that cheeseburger. I, I, I need it. I need the fuel. And what happens is you, you have no choice. And, and what happened is we bought McDonald's, and it cost a lot of money. In that same way, what do you do? What do the Jewish people do? This is why Jesus was outraged by what he saw. 
He observed people getting ripped off, getting taken advantage of, and the place of worship had become a place to make money. The corruption has crept its way into the place of worship in God's house and was now running rampant, and the leaders were letting it. Jesus sees the social injustice happening in the name of religion. These people are taking advantage of the Jews for the name of religion. The danger with this scenario that we read in the temple is that it started off with the best of intentions. You would think <clears throat> as people are coming for Passover, you would be doing a service or a blessing for those who need an animal, that you just set up shop right there, how convenient. But what happened is corruption over and over and over. Greed, selfishness, lust for money filled the hearts of the merchants, the hearts of the leaders, rather than having a heart that desired pure, undefiled worship before the Lord. While looking through old documents this past week, again, I stumbled across a document from 1961. And it's the building committee typed this up, and they gave it to the church members. And what the building committee was responsible for was um, they, they, they had to pretty much designate the plan for building this building. How much would it cost? Who do we go with? What the building's going to look like? And they drafted up this letter, and this is what it says. It starts off by saying this. We have come to a place in the work of New Village Congregational Church that without question, a new church is needed. Why? And then number one, they say worship. We need to worship God. Unless Christians learn to worship they will not be strengthened for the task of witnessing or living in proper relationship to either God or the world. We know that God dwells in the heart of Christians and not the building. Yet the Christian needs to come apart from the rush of life and into the sanctuary for quietness, for prayer, for worship, for inspiration and reverence that is designed to be an integral part of their lives. So 60 years ago, our church forefathers, we can call them that, our church forefathers, they had a need. Their current building, the one on Middle Country Road, that building in 1960 was already 150 years old. They could no longer fit everybody in there, and they were outgrowing it. Families were struggling with trying to find seats together. Not only that, but I don't know if you've been there. Those seats are really little. You're kind of on the edge of them a lot, and you're, you're sitting there like this, right? But they had a need. Also, there's reports that the noise and the traffic from Middle Country Road would sometimes be so loud that you couldn't hear the sermons. It was hard to hear what was going on. They had a faithful church, but again, they couldn't fit everyone together in it. Out of necessity, they faithfully planned and constructed this building that we're in today. Their goal was to have this sanctuary that we're sitting in, that we're in, to be a place of worship. Our hope and our plan is to continue having New Village Church be a place of worship for God and for His glory and worship alone. Continuing on, the second thing we see is Jesus' just response. Jesus' just response. In verse 15, this is what we read. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
So what does Jesus do? He purges the, his father's house of all the impure worship and the defiles that were going on. When we, most of us, when we picture Jesus, and I'll be honest, I, I fall into this too, when we picture Jesus, we picture him as this, this soft, just lovable, you know, let, let the little children come to me. Like, he's so huggable. I just want to hug Jesus. He's so nice. He's so, he's so comfortable. He's so loving. And he, he is. But this picture of Jesus is a little bit different. Jesus literally chases a mob of people out of the temple with nothing but a homemade whip. Now, I don't think Jesus looked uh, like this little shy person. Like, okay, can, you guys, can you guys leave the temple? You shouldn't be doing this. He spoke with authority. He saw the injustice. How dare you do this in my father's house, the place of worship. He makes a homemade whip. It's believed he probably took some of the leashes that were on cattle, tied them together, and literally chased people out with this whip, driving them out, cleansing the temple. We see his righteous anger on display towards the merchants who are ripping people off. And just imagine for the moment the, the chaos that would have seemed to have been erupted. You might have animals going everywhere, and the merchants are trying to you know, chase after animals over here and over there. They're just running crazy. He takes the money, he pours it out. I was going to actually set up a table and have some money and, and flip it, but I thought, eh, maybe not today. You know? But just picture that. He flips the table, the money goes everywhere. The money changers are, are trying to collect their money. Right? Just, just picture that. He's going in, he's purging his father's house, and it's all because of one God-man, Jesus Christ. I can't help but when I read this, I, I, I feel good. I'm like, I, I, I cheer. I'm like, yes, Jesus, thank you. I love that we see Jesus standing up to, these, to the injustices that are being made in the name of religion. And make no, no mistake, there's a lot of that that happens nowadays. I can't help us but cheer for what Jesus did. The second thing he does, or what we see, is that he doesn't tolerate any mockery of the spirit of true worship. Being in the temple physically, just being there, was not what was important. I know that because the Pharisees were there, the money changers were there, the merchants were there, the animal inspectors were there. The corruption was taking place by men who were in the temple. Just because they were in the temple doesn't mean that God was pleased with what they were doing. And as we meet together on Sundays, here in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings, we have to make sure that our hearts are in the right place for worship. We should be here to worship the Lord, to sing His praises, not the pastor's praises, to listen to His holy word, not our, holy, not our unholy word, serving Him and serving each other. That's the pr appropriate response to why we meet together to worship. It's not about us or simply being here physically, a true worshiper, as Jesus will say in John chapter 4, worships God in spirit and in truth. The problem with the Pharisees that Jesus calls them out over and over and over again, he says, these people honor me with their lips. Externally, they look good. They're doing all the things they should be doing. But Jesus knows their hearts, and he says, their hearts are far from me. He actually calls them whitewashed tombs. Picture a tomb that's all clean on the outside, but what's on the inside? A decaying, dead body. And that what was happening, that's what was happening in the temple in Jesus' time. We also see that Jesus' anger is appropriate. Being angry is not a sin. 
Let me say, being angry is not a sin. Paul in Ephesians 4 says, in your anger, do not sin. But, But let me just say this. When you're angry, it's easy to sin. When you're angry, your emotions are running you, not the Holy Spirit. Your emotions are running crazy. What happens with me when I get angry, I, I get stirred up with bitterness. And then I get even more angry because I'm angry. I'm like, what? how do I stop? I, I have to go for a walk sometimes. We all deal with anger. But people will say, see, Jesus was angry. Look what he did. That wasn't nice. He's a sinner. He's not perfect. No, no, no. This is Jesus' righteous anger. Perfect anger on display. People are getting abused in the name of God. Using the place of worship for their own selfish gain. Jesus comes in and takes back what is rightfully belonging to the Father. He's defending the name of the Lord and the glory of God. Once again, on this bulletin cover from 1964, I I love this. I, I stumbled upon this. And at the bottom it says, this is our invitation. There's an invitation to all those who are at the service. It says, to all those who are weary and need rest. To all those who are lonely and want friendship. To all who pray and to all who do not but ought to. To all who sin and need the Savior. Spoiler alert, that's all of us. And to whosoever will, this church opens wide the door in the name of the Lord Jesus and says, welcome. My prayer this week and my prayer for the vision of our church is that we continue this invitation as we move forward. And hopefully the next 60 plus years that this sanctuary will be a place where people come and feel welcomed, come and feel invited, but they leave knowing the gospel. They leave knowing that we're a church that glorifies God, that we don't compromise the gospel for anyone's sake at all, ever. So we see the corruption of God's house. We see Jesus' just response. He's not in sin. This is the appropriate response. And the last thing we see in these verses is Jesus' authority is questioned. In verse 18 it says, So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The response of the Jews for what Jesus did, and this was probably the Jewish temple police force or maybe some Jewish chief priest investigators, the response to Jesus was this. What sign do you show us for doing these things? They're demanding Jesus, by whose authority are you doing this? Who gives you the right to do this? And they actually demand Jesus show them a sign, show them a miracle for the proof of his authority. Remember, he just claimed that this is his father's house. He called them out in their sinful wrongdoings. And what they say is, we want a sign right now, Jesus. Show us something right now to prove that you have the right to do this. Prove to us that you are the prophet, you are the Messiah, you are the Lamb of God that John the Baptist proclaimed you to be. Prove it to us. It's interesting, throughout Jesus' ministry, the signs, the miracles he did, they were never enough. They were never enough. He raises Lazarus from the dead after he's dead for multiple days. And within a few days, they want to kill Lazarus again. They want to put him back in the grave. They want to kill Jesus. 
Jesus heals a blind man, and rather than rejoicing that from the Pharisees, rather than rejoicing that somebody who's a member of their fold, a member of their flock, was healed of their blindness by Jesus, they get angry at this man and they kick him, they excommunicate him out of the temple. And they're mad at Jesus. All the miracles that Jesus did were never enough. Rather than giving them what they asked for, Jesus points them to the greatest miracle that the world will ever witness, his resurrection. His resurrection. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 19. Now the Jews were thinking of the actual physical temple that they were in at that moment. Herod's temple, which was, would later be destroyed in about 70 A.D., about 35-ish years later, maybe 37 years later, and they said, it's taken 46 years. Jesus, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, to expand or have this process of, of Herod's beautification to the temple, which began 19 or 20 years before Jesus' birth and still wasn't complete. I can almost imagine the Jews laughing. Jesus, you're, this temple that we're in, it's under construction. It's taken up to 46 years. It's not done yet. You're, you're going to destroy it by yourself? And not only that, but you're going to rebuild it in three days? We know you're a carpenter, but, but really? You're that good? Three days you'll rebuild this temple? I just picture them laughing at Jesus. They're not getting it. In verse 21 it says, But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. It's clear throughout the gospel that Jesus is aware of his own divine schedule. He knew that he would die and raise himself up from the dead on the third day. Only God can make that type of claim and only God can do that type of work. In verse 22, we see what, what John writes, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Multiple times Jesus made this prediction about his death, and the disciples, they just couldn't understand it. And right here we have John going back after all these events and saying, this is what Jesus was talking about, his body. And we come to this question, and I'm sure you've asked it or someone has, might, might have asked you this before. Why trust Jesus over any other religion? Why trust Jesus over any other religious teacher or prophet? Because he claimed to die, and he claimed three days later to resurrect from the grave, and he does it. He did it. Please, if you make this type of claim... In your life, and you come to, hey, David, I'm going to die in three days later. I'll come back from that. If you make that claim and it happens and I see you after you die three days later, I'll listen very carefully and closely to everything you said. The difference between Jesus and these other prophets and teachers, Jesus says this, there's nothing you can do to please God. All other religion says, do this, follow these commands, be obedient, do X, Y, and Z, earn your salvation. Where Christianity and Jesus says this, it's not about that. You can't do that. Even if we make a resume of the greatest achievements in our life with everything, we give Jesus our best version of ourselves. it's still not enough. The Bible says all of our righteous deeds are dirty rags before the Lord. And now we have a problem. If we can't work our way for salvation, if we can't earn it ourselves, what do we do? We're helpless. We're hopeless. We need a Savior. We need Jesus, someone who will pay that debt us, who gives us life even when we don't deserve it and we don't earn it. It's the gift of eternal life that Jesus gives to us. 
where religion says, do this, 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 Jesus says, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. You can't earn it. But what you can do is follow me. Put your faith, put your hope, put your trust in me. I love what Paul writes in Romans. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, not a superficial belief, but a real belief that Jesus was raised from the dead, then you will be saved. Then you'll be saved. And as the Jews were in the temple, they're celebrating Passover, they're looking back at the power of God and the faithfulness that God showed them, the mercy and grace He showed them in Egypt when they were in slavery. It's a beautiful picture and it's a beautiful reminder for us what Jesus did on our behalf. As lambs were slaughtered and sacrificed for the atonement of their sin, Jesus came to be the eternal Lamb of God who was sacrificed on the cross in our place, in my place. His blood was shed and it covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. For those of us who have put our faith, our hope, and our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says we've been adopted into His family as sons and daughters that were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the light, that we've received eternal life from Jesus. If your faith is not in Jesus, the Bible says that you are still dead in your sins. You're dead in your sins, and you're going to face the wrath of God for your sins. My plea is this. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, talk to me. Ask me questions. Even if I'm having a really nice conversation, I'm laughing, and it looks like I'm having a great time, respectfully interrupt me and say, I need to talk to you. I'll make time for you. Your soul is more important than anything else in this world. Don't spend an eternity without knowing who Jesus is. Getting back to this building uh, committee letter that I found. Right, They talked about why they need a building. Number one is they said worship. We need to build a building that will accommodate and be a place of worship. But the second thing that they have listed is service. And this is what they say, service. We are not here to be spiritually idle, to enjoy the blessing of God's grace without accepting the challenge of going into all the world to preach the gospel. God will hold us responsible for our own community and our own neighbors. If they've never heard the gospel, we stand responsible. I'm reading that and I'm like, oh, I wish I didn't read this. <laughs> it would have been easier not, not to read this. What we see is they wanted this to be a place of worship for the saints to come in and be equipped for the saints of the work of the ministry, but not only that, to go outward, to extend outwardly into our community, to tell our neighbors about who Jesus is. That was the church's vision in 1961, to extend outwardly into Lake Grove. We're called to follow Christ, to surrender our lives fully to him, but we're also called to go out and to tell people about the gospel. If New Village Church does not preach the gospel to our neighbors, someone else will. And they might not be Christians. If our church does not preach the gospel to our neighbors, then who will? That was the mission of our church forefathers, and that's the same mission for us today. And I want to just close with, with a word of encouragement. My hope and my prayer, my desire is that we continue to use this building, this facility, the field, the parking lot, the parsonages, the property 
as a place of worship for the living and true God, to serve him and to tell the community about Jesus and to continue to look forward towards the future. Looking back and remembering the past is good. That, we're, we can do that, but here's the temptation. If we get stuck looking backwards, we'll never move forward. If we get stuck looking backwards as we try to move forward, we'll stumble and we'll fall. The Jews are looking back to the Passover. They're looking back. They're commanded by God to look back and to remember. But the temptation is, sometimes we look back in the past and we get angry. And we're like, man, I, wish, I just wish we had that now. I wish. And then what happens is your emotions get stirred up and then you get, you get stuck in, in the past. And my prayer is that we use the past. We look at all these beautiful pictures of the 20-plus kids in, in Boys Brigade and the youth group and the and Pioneer Girls and all these pictures and all these memories and say, let's do that again. What's holding us back? Let's do that again. Let's not just look back and, 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 and just say, oh, look at those glory days. No, let's plan and say, let's do that now. Let's continue using this building to glorify God and to worship him alone. I pray that we extend and we advance his kingdom, not our kingdom. His agenda, not our agenda. His word, not my words. As I close in prayer, I want to read a prayer that was actually prayed for in 1962 or 63 by the pastor for the dedication of this building. So let's pray. And the worship team, you can come on, come on stage. We now, the people of this church and congregation, grateful for our heritage and mindful of the sacrifices of our fathers, consecrate ourselves anew to the worship of God in spirit and truth and to service of our fellow men in the spirit of Christ. And we dedicate this building with all its furnishings in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we praise you this morning. We thank you for all the blessings that you've given us, what you gave our church forefathers. Let us pray and remember that this is not our building. This is not our sanctuary. It belongs to you. God, I pray that you protect us from being prideful. You protect us from being bitter or being discouraged at the past. I pray, Lord, that you give us a sense of revitalization. You stir our hearts to stay on mission, to continue using this building to worship you and you alone. I pray, Lord, that you give each one of us as church members an opportunity to share the gospel with our neighbors. I pray for boldness, Lord. It is scary sharing our faith. But I pray for boldness, including myself, to share who you are with others. I pray, Lord, that we are known at New Village Church, can be known in this community for our love for others, but more importantly and most importantly, our love for you. So Jesus, we praise you this morning. We thank you for what you've done, that you died on the cross in our place, taking on the wrath and the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. The Bible says that sin separates. There's a cost to sinning, and that cost is death. But Jesus, you paid that debt, and you paid it in full. And three days later, you rose again, claiming authority over life and death, and there's eternal life only by believing in your name. I pray we never forget that. And Lord, I pray for the food that we'll receive later after the service. I pray that it'll bless 
uh, our bodies and, and give us energy and nourishment for the day, that you bless our conversations, that you bless the fellowship. I pray that as we continue our service, and as we close it with worship, that we remember who you are and you love us. And in Jesus, your mighty, powerful, precious name we pray. Amen.